0: Let's turn to Genesis chapter 25. Last week, we started a new sermon series on the lives of Isaac and Jacob, which will be taking us through the fall. And there's two reasons that I mentioned last week as to why we're doing this series. One reason is because throughout the Bible, we read that God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And one implication of that is that when we understand who, for example, Isaac's God is, then we're understanding who the real God is because God is the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So when we learn about who Jacob's God is, we're learning about who the real God is and we can learn from studying Isaac and from studying Jacob, how did they relate to God and how did God relate to them. So that's what we're going to be learning over these next weeks. A second reason we want to study the lives of Isaac and Jacob is because their lives show how God repeats and secures his promise to save people from every nation, tongue, and tribe through the serpent crusher, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, let me explain about about that. Last week, I gave an overview of the book of Genesis. Chapters 1 and 2, we see that God creates... And displays how beautiful he is, how wise he is, how powerful he is, how full of joy and overflowing love he is to create such a beautiful world for us. He's created, Genesis 1 and 2. Tragically, in Genesis 3, though, Adam and Eve do what we've all done. They succumbed to the temptation of the serpent. Here's where the serpent comes in. And they rebelled against God, plunging the whole world under The power of sin under the power of death under God's curse. That's Genesis 3. But also in Genesis chapter 3, God gives an amazing promise. He promises that through one of Eve's offspring, he is going to raise up someone who will crush the serpent's head. Although in the process of crushing the serpent's head, his own heel, the serpent will crush his heel. So who is this offspring of Eve who ends up crushing the serpent, crushing Satan's head, Satan's work? The rest of the Bible tells us it's Jesus Christ. And by dying on the cross, Jesus paid for the guilt of all who would trust him. And by doing that, he broke Satan's power. He crushed the serpent's head, although in the process of that, his heel was crushed. He died, he was wounded, but he was then raised from the dead. So back in Genesis chapter 3:15, the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, we see the Messiah promised. The serpent crusher is coming. That's Genesis 3. Then Genesis 4 through 11, we see sin spreading. So far, so wide, so horribly, that by the end of chapter 11, we start to think, what happened to God's promise? What's this about the serpent crusher? When's this gonna happen? It looks like sin's gaining ground here. It doesn't look like God's winning here. But in chapter 12, God raises up Abraham, and he repeats his promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, through one of your offspring, I'm going to raise up someone through whom people will be saved from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. So who is this human being in the line of Abraham who saves people from every nation, tongue, and tribe? The rest of the Bible makes it clear it's Jesus Christ. So there, the same promise, Genesis 3, is repeated in different words in Genesis chapter 12. And for the rest of the book of Genesis, then, we see God repeating this promise. And we see God securing this promise. Obstacles come up against it. God, we talked last week, like a steamroller just just steamrolls over. Every obstacle that's brought up against this promise of the coming of the Messiah. So the life of Abraham, the life of Isaac, and the life of Jacob... All show God repeating the promise of the Messiah and securing the promise of the Messiah. So let's start with Genesis 25, 19 through 23, this morning. We'll go through verse 34, but right now, verses 19 through 23, because Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, tells us about how we should respond to our problems by showing us how Isaac and how Rebekah responded to their problems. Start with verse 19. Here's what Moses writes. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padanaram, Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. She wasn't able to get pregnant. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, first of all, understand how this is an obstacle for God's promise. Just Here's another obstacle brought up. Because God had promised, I'm going to give uh, one of the offspring of Abraham, one of Abraham's descendants, Through one of Abraham's descendants, I'm going to save people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And then a few chapters later, God narrows the focus, not just through Abraham, but this will be through Abraham's son Isaac, so through Isaac. So Isaac and Rebekah are going to have a child through whom people are going to be saved from every nation, tongue, and tribe. But if Rebekah can't get pregnant, then that's an obstacle brought up against God's promise. So that's a problem here. We want to see how this is going to get resolved. But not only that, this shows us about what Isaac does when he's got a problem. His wife can't get pregnant. What is he going to do? And I just want to, before we look at what he does, we've already seen that, but before we dwell on it a bit more, ask yourself the question, what problems do you have right now? What problems are you facing? Just get real, think about it. Maybe it's something at work where there's somebody who's taking credit for your work. Or maybe there's somebody that is working on your team who's just become real difficult to work with. Or maybe there's financial problems you're facing or or health problems. Maybe there's spiritual problems. Maybe you're battling against jealousy towards someone you just can't get rid of it or you're 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 feeling overwhelmed by bitterness or maybe discouragement or whatever it might be think right now What problem are you facing every single one of us has a problem? I mean, isn't it true that you've either got a problem or you're heading towards a problem, right? Isn't that how life is this side of heaven? This side of heaven. Thank you, Lord, but that's the truth. So everybody's got a problem What do you do when you face problems? What have you done with that problem? What does Jacob do with his problem? What does Isaac do with his problem here? And what he does is he prays. Did you see that? Right there in verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, why did Isaac pray? And you might think, well, that's because this is a primitive group of people. They didn't have medical advances yet. They don't understand about how to deal with infertility. And that's true. They didn't have the medical advances that we have. They didn't deal with infertility medically like we are able to today. We're very thankful for doctors, nurses. God has provided doctors and nurses. But that's not why he prayed. It's not just because they were primitive people and had nothing better to do. Let me give you four reasons why he prayed. Number one, he prayed because he knew God is sovereign over everything, including how our bodies work. God created the reproductive system. God's not waiting thinking, gosh, I I need some doctors to figure this thing out here. We love doctors, okay? We love nurses. That's not what God is saying. God is in sovereign control of the reproductive system. He created us. God can just say a word, and she'll be able to get pregnant. Just a word. He can do that with one hand tied behind his back. I mean, God is sovereign over everything. So that's one reason why Isaac prays, because God is sovereign over everything. Another reason he prays, even though he knows he has sinned, he knows because of his sin, God has no obligation to respond to him. In fact, his sin deserves punishment. But he also knows that because of what he learned from his father, Genesis 15, 6, that by trusting in God, he's joined to what the Messiah would do In paying for sin on the cross. I hope you all understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of those who would trust him after he died on the cross, but he also paid for the sins of those who trusted before the cross. His sin is retroactive, right? Old Testament people saved through trusting Jesus' death on the cross just like we are saved today, and so he knew that even though he'd sinned, by faith he was joined to what the Messiah would do in the future Paying for his sin. So he knew that when he said, Father, that even though he had sinned, he knew that God was smiling, listening, saying, Yes, ready to listen. And do you understand that that's how God is? No matter what you did yesterday, no matter what sins have happened last month, because of Jesus Christ paying for sin and your Humility and brokenness and trust. Say, Father, I'm coming to you in Jesus' name, my Savior. Father's smiling. He's moving towards you. He's listening. He wants to hear. That's the second reason why Isaac prayed. First is because God's sovereign. Second, because God forgives. Third reason, because God is accessible. That is because of the Messiah, Isaac could go right to God. Right to God. Didn't need a priest to go through. Didn't need an idol to pray through. Didn't need a special building to go into to pray. Pray. God's accessible. We can pray wherever we are. Just you and God through Jesus. And God the Father is listening. And he's so glad you're asking for what you're asking for. Sovereign, forgiving, accessible. And then the last reason is because God promises to answer. Here's how Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who asks, receives. How many who ask receive? Everyone, everyone who asks. Anyone who turns to the Father in Jesus' name and asks, receives every time. Now, I need to put a couple of little fine print to that as we say. There are instances in the Bible where we see people praying and we see God answering, but not in the way that the people were asking. Paul's thorn in the flesh is the most clear example to me. Paul was asking that his thorn in the flesh would be removed. And God did not remove the thorn in the flesh, but God did something even better. God says, I'm going to so pour out my nearness to you. I'm going to so pour out my power upon you, my grace upon you, that you will be glad I didn't take the thorn if it's bringing you so much of me. And Paul responds later, he says, that's why I'm boasting in my weakness, because the power of Christ is dwelling in me. So here's how I put this. God will answer every prayer we pray in Jesus' name, either by giving us exactly what we ask for, or something even better, which he knows is even better, which we probably wouldn't have received had we not asked. So the only way you can lose is by not asking. Because everyone who asks, receives. And that's why Isaac prayed. God is sovereign, God is forgiving, God is accessible, and God answers. So what are you doing with your problems? Let me just get a little more pointed. Have you prayed about that problem? I mean, have you really prayed about it? Not just praying and passing while you're driving, but have you maybe sat down at your kitchen table or kneeled down by your bed with your Bible open and just... Lord, I want to come to you now and I want to ask you this now in Jesus' name. And you read over God's promises in His Word, and you pray those promises, and you you thank God for all that He's done, and, and then you you ask Him, Have you taken time? I mean, I am so quick to think I know the solution to problems myself and to try to solve them myself. And I wish I would have learned by now, but I'm, I'm getting better, church. Don't be too worried. But aren't we all that way? Or are we just lapse into despair. We either despair or we think we can do it ourselves. God says, pray, pray, pray. Are you praying about the problem that you're facing? Here we're learning about the God of Isaac. How do we relate to the God of Isaac? How does he relate to us? We relate to him by praying about every problem. He relates by answering those prayers. Are you praying? Story's not over, though, yet with the prayer idea. Verse 22, the children... Struggled together within her. Children, twins. She got pregnant with twins. Okay? The children struggled together within her. And it must have been, you know, we know that babies kick and move, but this might, must have been more than that, okay? Because she was concerned about this. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It could have meant different things. Uh, just praying, saying, God, I want to seek your face here. What's happening? This is very unusual. I'm concerned. What's going on? God may have um, responded to her by means of a, of a dream, possibly, or of just stirring her heart so that she knew what God was saying. There's lots, lots of ways God could answer. I mean, whatever whatever she might have thought she heard from God needs to be filtered through God's word because this is true. We can be wrong with what we think, right? Have you ever heard of people who's God told me to do this. It's like, I know that God would never tell you to do that, right? So it's got to be filtered through the Bible. The Bible's the authority, not what we think we're hearing. But she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord spoke to her and answered her. And look at what he said. Verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. So you've got twins, they're going to become two nations. Those nations are going to be divided, hostile against each other. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Okay, so Rebecca inquires of the Lord. She asks God, why are these children fighting inside my womb? Why is that happening? And again, why did she ask God? Let me give you a couple of reasons. One reason is because she knows God knows everything. God knows everything. God isn't just not, he's not only in sovereign control over everything, he is in sovereign control over everything. But God has purposefully, sovereignly allowed everything. He has a purpose for everything that's taking place. And so when we ask him, why is this happening? He has an answer. He's not saying, I don't know, I don't know why that's happening. He has a reason why that's happening. He had a reason why this is happening. And so she asks him because she knows God knows. Second reason she inquires of the Lord and asks is because, again, even though she has sinned against God, she knows that by faith she's joined to what the Messiah would do in paying for all of her sins. And so she knows that because of the Messiah, she has open access and God is smiling upon her when she comes and asks him. Another reason she inquires of the Lord is because God promises to give us wisdom. One promise we love to quote here at Grace Church at least I love to quote it, and I hear it from many of you as well, James chapter one, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it, the wisdom, will be given to him. It is an ironclad promise. Whenever you need wisdom, and you come and you ask God in Jesus' name, give me wisdom, you inquire of the Lord, God will give you the wisdom that you need every time. You will never ask God for wisdom and not receive the wisdom that you need every time. So again, we're, we're looking here at the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Looking at the life of Rebekah. God is the God of Isaac. God is the God of Rebecca. We're learning about who the true God is. And the true God is the God who through what Jesus would do on the cross years in the future... Loved to hear prayer from sinful people like Isaac, like Rebecca, like you, like me. And then when we ask God for wisdom, he will give us the wisdom we need. So here's my question. What questions are you puzzled about? What do you need wisdom about? Because we all need wisdom lots of the time. We don't know everything we need to know. We're wondering, why did this happen recently? Or how should I solve this work situation or how can I love my son better or my daughter better how can I care for my wife more we have questions you know, what should I do for my career path my job's looking tenuous what should I do lots of questions have you inquired of the lord about that question have you taken time to seek his face and say god you know the answer to this and you promised to give me wisdom and i'm coming to you in jesus Name Not because of my own goodness and righteousness, but because of what he did on the cross. Give me wisdom. Have you done that? Have you done that? If you haven't, I've got great news for you. When you do, God will answer you. He will give you the wisdom you need. So do it. Do it. Let's not be so self-sufficient. Let's not think we can figure all the answers out for ourselves. Let's ask God. Let's be like Rebecca. So, that's what we should do about our problems, and the answer is pray. When you've got a problem, inquire of God when you need wisdom. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is how we relate to him. This is how he relates to us. Now, I had another question about this passage, and it's what God had said to Rebekah at the end of verse 23. The older shall serve the younger. That's very puzzling. Read it again. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now notice the nations will be divided but these twins, the older is going to serve the younger. Now that, in that culture back then they had what was called primogeniture, which meant that the firstborn had the position of honor among the siblings, and received twice as much of the inheritance. So to have that position of being the firstborn was very significant. And when God says that the older shall serve the younger, God is switching what everybody else did in their families. The older was the firstborn, the older had that position of honor. God is switching it and saying the younger is going to have that position of honor. The younger is going to receive twice as much of the inheritance the younger one is going to get this. And the question is, why does God do that? Why does God switch the order of who has preeminence? And the reason that we see in this passage and all through the Bible is because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he loves to do amazing good for completely undeserving, unworthy people, so that we are humbled and he is glorified. So God loves to do amazing good for undeserving, unworthy people. Now, let me just comment. This is totally different from what I believe every other religion teaches. Every other religion teaches that God does good for people who stand out in some way. People who are particularly righteous or particularly good or particularly politically powerful or wealthy or something like that. God's looking for good people. There's a good person. I'm going to bless this good person. There's a good person. I'm going to bless this good person. That's not what God does. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what God does is He does amazing good for completely undeserving people. Now, the truth is, All of us are completely undeserving. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 describes how sin had spread through the world. And it says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And here's why. For every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6 verse 5. That was true of all of them. And that's been true of all of us. We've all rebelled against God. We've all turned our backs against God. We've all sinned against God. And so none of us deserve anything good from God. And so to relate to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the first step. We need to own up to the fact that we deserve nothing good from God. But the good news, church, is that because of what Jesus has done in paying for our sins, God loves to do amazing good for undeserving, unworthy people like me and like you. And this is what God does throughout history. I just wrote down a couple of examples here. Joseph, one of, uh, was, was, the, was one of the youngest of the brothers, became the number two man in Egypt. Joseph, who was one of the youngest brothers. David was the youngest of his brothers. Who got chosen to be king of Israel? David did. Okay? And I thought about Ruth. Remember the story of Ruth? Ruth was from Moab. Ruth was not from, biologically, part of the nation of Israel. Ruth was from Moab. And you know who one of Jesus' great 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 grandmothers was? Ruth. Read Matthew's genealogy, Matthew chapter one. Ruth from Moab. It's right there. Again, lowly. You would never expect God to have a Gentile be one of Jesus' great 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 grandparents, but Ruth was. It's amazing things. He God loves to do amazing good for undeserving people. One more example. What town was Jesus born in? Was it Jerusalem, right? High rises, wealth, Hilton Hotel, certainly the the top floor suite, that's where the Messiah is going to be born, right? Let the dignitaries take a number, they can come up No, no. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Bethlehem was like... What's a town around here that would like... Where? Madnad Zayed. Although I know we have some teacher. Who who teaches Madnad Zayed here? We love Madnad Zayed, okay? But it's small, right? Okay, so why would God have the Messiah be born in? This is why. Because God loves to do amazing good for the lowly and undeserving. So here's here's what this means for Esau. If Esau was the firstborn, and if the reason that Esau became the one through whom the Messiah would be born, was because Esau was the firstborn. If that's why he was the one through whom the Messiah would be born, then if somebody said, Esau, why why are you the one through whom the Messiah is born? He would say, well, because I was the firstborn. It's all about him. But if it's not Esau, if it's Jacob, and somebody asks Jacob, how did you get to be the one through whom the Messiah was born? Jacob can't say it was anything about him. It was all about God. Because God did this. There's nothing about me that warranted this. All the glory goes to God. I'm just a humble recipient of mercy. So Jacob gets the mercy. God gets the glory. That's how God operates. Again, this is wonderful news for us because we all have sinned against God. We all were running away from God with all our might. We, We were not interested. We were rebelling against God. We were hostile against God. And if you are trusting Jesus this morning, here's why. It's not because there was anything distinctive in you that warranted salvation, that earned salvation. You weren't good enough. You were running away from God. You had no faith in God. You had no interest in God. But what the Bible teaches is that before the foundation of the world, God set his affection upon you while you were still a sinner. God chose to love you while you were still shaking your fist at him and turning your back on him. And God chose to send Jesus to pay for your sin on the cross, to purchase a new heart for you, to purchase faith for you. Again, you were his enemy, but God, for no reason in you, but because of his mercy, because of his love, he set his love and affection and compassion upon you. Sent Jesus to die for you, and at some point in your life, then God brought his power upon you, and he changed your heart. He took out the heart of stone. He gave you a heart of flesh. He gave you a heart which would trust Jesus. And you turned and you put your trust in Jesus. You turned from your sin. You trusted Jesus. You're immediately forgiven for all of your sins. God poured out the Holy Spirit upon you. You felt the presence of God for the first time. This is the joy you've been longing for all your life. And then God proceeds to care for you. He strengthens your faith. He helps you to to Fight against temptation. When you stumble, he brings you back to him. He forgives you as you confess your sin. He keeps your faith. The good work he started, he continues. He is sustaining you. He is strengthening you. He is keeping you all the way through. He gives you grace to die. He raises you from the dead. You're in heaven. And if someone asks you, how did you end up in heaven? What's the answer? God saved me. God had mercy upon me. Because there was nothing that you did that distinguished you from anybody else that warranted that God set his affection upon you and saved you. So we are humbled in salvation because we didn't do anything to deserve it. And he's glorified in our salvation. We get the mercy. He gets the glory. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what this means is recognize, first of all, that your salvation and every blessing God's given to you is a blood-bought undeserved gift given to you from God through Jesus Christ and humble yourself for that. This is mercy, the mercy of God. So God gets all the glory and we're humbled before him. Humble yourself before God and worship God for what he's done. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why God chooses the younger over the older. Now, what do we learn about Jacob and Esau? Verses 24 to 34. Let me read these verses. I'm going to show you three truths about them. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Esau sounds like the word for red. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Okay, Jacob means sort of supplanters, is what a lot of dictionaries use, but we don't really use that word. Are you familiar with the word finagle? If somebody finagles something, maybe not. Okay, I've done a couple of other ones. Uh, maybe finagle doesn't work. How about cheater? Schemer? Okay, so that's what the word Jacob means. And he's saying, you're not going to be born first. I'm going to be born first. He's trying to pull him back. But of course, he was born first because that was God's plan. And then Jacob was the second born. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. He was a hunter. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. I'll come back to that in a moment. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So let me show you just three truths here. First, there's a division between Jacob and Esau. Remember, God said that back in verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided and here we see that just as God said, they're divided. Verse 26, like I said, Jacob's holding Esau's heel. I want to be the firstborn. Okay? They're at odds, they're in opposition against each other. Verse 27, Esau's the outdoorsman. Okay? He's got the four by four, he's got the, the rifle in the rack. Okay? He's all that stuff. And, uh, Jacob's not the outdoorsman. Jacob's Jacob's working on his computer, you know, or reading or something like that. Okay, both are just equally valid, all right? Okay, no judgment here. But they were divided. Not only that, verse 28, they divided their parents, right? Because Jacob and Rebekah were divided over Esau and Jacob. Jacob favored Esau, and Rebekah favored Jacob. And I just simply want to point out that this shows us, once again, that God's word is true. God had said, they'll be divided. Here we see, they are divided. God's word is true. What God says is always true. And that kind of has become more important to me, being in this country. um, You know, you're standing in line, waiting to get your ID card or visa or whatever it might be. and, And the person says, so just fill out this form, okay? Bring it back to the same office tomorrow, and um, don't need to bring anything else here. Just bring your ID card or whatever it might be. Okay, so you go back home, fill out the form, bring it back the next day. person says, oh, no, 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 that's not the form for this. That's not how it works here. And where's your passport? No, 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 and you've got to go to that building over there. So you're living on the basis of the word you heard yesterday, and it ends up being not true. Anybody experienced that? Just a few times, okay. (laughs) But here's the point I want to make. You are living your life based on someone's word. Maybe yours. Maybe some best-selling author you've read. Maybe some commentator you've listened to on the radio or on television. You're building your life, basing your life on someone's word. There's only one word that is always true, has never changed, and always will be true. And that's the word of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can build your life on this book, and you will never be disappointed. Never will you find God said one thing, but he didn't do it. God is always faithful to his word. So my question to you is, what are you building your life on? Whose word? Your word? Let me just ask you, have you ever been wrong before about anything? Anyone? Anyone been wrong? Like all of us, okay? Our word can be wrong. New York Times bestsellers, or whatever your country's bestsellers are, they can be wrong. News pundits can be wrong. Religious leaders can be wrong. God is never wrong. God's son Jesus is never wrong. And you can build your life on the word of God, and it will be rock-solid, stable doesn't mean it's easy right you can have times where you're going through deep valleys of difficulty and you have to open up God's word and just say God meet me show me I trust you help me it's not easy but whenever you open up God's word what you'll find is the absolute truth which will never fail you never disappoint you always be true God's word was true he said they'd be divided and they were divided That's the first truth about what we learned about Jacob and Esau. They were divided just as God's word said. Second truth about Jacob. Remember, I said Jacob was a supplanter, he was a finagler, a cheater, schemer, swindler. I looked up all those, you know, Régé's thesaurus. Okay, it worked out pretty well. He wanted the birthright. We can tell. He wanted that birthright. As soon as Esau said, Give me some of that stew, out of nowhere, Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Jacob was thinking about the birthright. That was in his mind. He wanted the birthright. Now what's wrong with that? Well, as we keep reading the story, we will see that Jacob also lies to get the blessing from his father. Remember that story? So we can see there's a pattern here. There's There's a thread in Jacob's life that shows that he doesn't mind using devious sinful means to get what he wants. He's happy to use devious, sinful, wicked means. Yes, Esau was wrong, as we'll see in a moment, to do this, to, to sell it to him. But Jacob totally took advantage of him and did wrong to him as well. Do You see that? Jacob was willing to use sinful means to get what he wanted, and he, that means he was not trusting one of God's promises in Psalm 84.11. Here's the promise of Psalm 84.11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If you walk uprightly, how many good things will you miss out on? None is what this verse says. Do you see that? No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Jacob did not trust that promise from God. He did not believe that promise from God. He thought he needed to use his own devious, sinful means to get something that he thought would be good for him. So what we learn about Jacob is that he is a finagler, he's a supplanter, he's a cheater, he's a schemer, he's a swindler. He's a sinful man, just like I've been, just like you've been. He doesn't trust God's promise. So my encouragement to you is don't be like Jacob. Trust God's promise. No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. I would guess that some of you are being tempted right now to try to get something using sinful means. Through sinful means ways, You're trying to get something that you haven't received yet, and God will look you straight in the eye and he would say, no good thing will, you, will I withhold from you as you walk uprightly. Walking uprightly doesn't mean being perfect, because none of us is. Walking uprightly means that our hearts are bent upon obeying God, and when we stumble, we confess, we ask for forgiveness, strengthen me to do right, and we get up and we walk back into the path of doing right. doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means we're repenting, Right? That's walking uprightly. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Powerful promise. Jacob didn't trust it. Grace Church, let's trust it. That's what we learn about Jacob. Now, Esau. Esau was called red, verse 25. We saw that. Also called Edom, verse 30, which also sounds like red. And I want to show you the map just so that you can see how this ended up happening. So, Jacob um, had 12 sons, 12 nations of Israel, all lived right in here. And then here's where Esau and his nation lived. And the point I want to make is that they were divided. And as you read through the history of the Old Testament, you'll see that there is conflict there, there's opposition there, there's difficulty there. So, Then he despised his birthright. Look at verse 34. Simply says, the last line, thus Esau despised his birthright. Now what does that mean? On one level, he did say, I don't care about the birthright. I don't care about the twice as much share of the inheritance. I want to eat right now but many commentators think there's more going on here than just that. Many commentators think that because they would have known the Messiah was going to be born through the line of Abraham, and then the Messiah was going to be born through the line of Abraham's lineage, and they may not have known yet what God said to Rebekah. They may, they may not have. If he knew, then he was saying, I don't really care about the serpent crusher. I don't really care about all these things. I just want to eat or something along those lines. That makes many commentators think that there's more of a spiritual despising of God's plans and God's purposes here. But look also at what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. He says, see to it, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. How is Esau unholy? Here's how. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. So Esau was not just foolish, or not just like shortchanging himself, he was unholy in selling his birthright for a meal. And then verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I think the point here is to give us a picture of someone who trades tiny Pleasures and short term pleasures for full pleasures and everlasting pleasures. That's what's being described here. I mean, really, to trade the birthright for a pot of stew, that's ridiculous. And yet, how ridiculous is it that we do that every day, don't we, church? We trade. The full joy of walking with Christ and the everlasting joy of walking with Christ for the puny and temporary joys of sin. See, every temptation is giving you the same basic lie. This sin will satisfy you, fill you more than knowing God through Jesus will. That's what every temptation is telling you. Every single one and every one is a lie because it's just not true. Sin does offer pleasure. Tiny pleasures in comparison to the pleasures of knowing God through the person of Jesus. Tiny pleasures and temporary pleasures. How long do sin's pleasures last? How long do God's pleasures last? And so every temptation is lying to you that it will give you more heart-filling joy, more satisfaction, more heartfulness than knowing God in the person of Jesus, than knowing God in the person of Jesus. And it's a lie. Now, here's something I would suggest. I would guess some of you are being tempted right now. And when you're being tempted, it's like you're being tempted. Like, you want that money, or you, you want that illness, that wrong sexual relationship, or, or you, you want that thing that you know you to going to great debt to buy. You shouldn't, so you're being pulled towards this thing. So how do you fight temptation? Years ago, this will show how old I am. I think it was in the U.S. Maybe it was in your country, too. But they did taste tests between Coke and Pepsi, for example, Anybody have those in your countries? Well, we did, okay. And uh, there's somebody taste Pepsi and taste Coke and then give your verdict. And of course, they only showed the ones who showed whichever company was paying for the commercial. That's how it worked. When you're tempted to sin, step back and do a taste test. It is ask yourself, because see, Satan doesn't want you to do a taste test. You're longing for this, you're desiring this, and the only reason you're longing for this and desiring this is because you have forgotten about knowing God in the person of Jesus and all that there is there. So run the taste test. Sit back and say, okay, now wait a minute. I could pursue this sin, and it would bring me this, and this, and this, and this, okay. But on the other hand, I can know God in the person of Jesus. I can experience having his love poured into my heart. I can have joy unspeakable and full of glory, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. I can have strength in the darkest trial. I can have perseverance through the most significant difficulty. I can know I'm going to be raised from the dead at the end of of my life. I know I'm going to be with the redeemed from every nation, tongue, and tribe forever worshiping God. I can have God says, in my presence there is fullness of joy. At my right hand there are pleasures forever, Psalm chapter 1611. So just run the taste test. Here's what sin can bring you. Here's what God can bring you. It's, you It's like, here's what sin can bring you, and here's what God can bring you. And when you ponder that and pray over that, you'll make the right decision. That's how you fight sin. You fight the pleasures of sin with the superior pleasures of knowing God in the person of Jesus. God never calls his people to sacrifice a greater pleasure for a lesser pleasure. Never. Sin always calls you to sacrifice a greater pleasure for a lesser pleasure. Don't be duped. Don't be hoodwinked. Don't be deceived. Step back Run the taste test. If you need to ask a brother or sister in the body of Christ, hey, help me do a taste test that, that can help sometimes. Show me some scriptures. Help me think this through. I'm being pulled and being drawn. The body of Christ is powerful, especially here in Abu Dhabi. Have brothers and sisters around you, but run the taste test. Okay. That's what we learn about Jacob and Esau. They're divided, showing that God's word is true. Jacob did not trust Psalm 8411. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Let's trust that promise. And Esau sacrificed the greater pleasure, the greatest pleasure, knowing God in the person of Jesus, for the puny pleasures of sin. Let's not do that. Okay, three takeaways. Since I was praying about this last night, Lord, so what what do you want to really impact us with as Grace Church? Pick one of these. Number one, trust God's Word. Trust God's Word. And especially those of you who are not yet trusting Jesus Christ We love having people come here Friday mornings who are interested, who are searching, who are wondering about spiritual things. We're glad you're here. But I want to encourage you that you can trust God's word. Jesus Christ is the Messiah sent from God, fully man, he was of the offspring of Eve, and fully God, as the Old Testament taught, and as he taught. And he died on the cross to pay the guilt of sin for everyone who would trust him. He promises you that. And when you turn to Jesus and you trust him to forgive you, he will forgive you for all your sins, past, present, and future. When you trust him to change your heart, you will experience the Holy Spirit coming in, filling you and starting to change you. You will see yourself starting to change by his power. His word is true. Trust him to forgive you, trust him to change you, and trust him to satisfy you. He will so pour his love into your heart for the first time, you'll be filled with the joy you've longed for all your life. Trust his word. Second takeaway, trust God to bring you everything you need without you needing to sin to get it. Trust God. He will give you everything you need. If you think, "Why well, I needed that. He didn't give it to me. He knows best what we need. And he'll satisfy you with himself far more than you could have ever been satisfied with that. Trust him to give you whatever you'll need. Don't sin in order to get it. And then third, trust that you'll be more satisfied in Jesus Christ than in sin. Those of you who are being tempted right now, it's hard, I know. Temptation is brutal. We've got to fight, but this is how we fight. God, show me your glory. Help me run the taste test. Show me how much more there is in you than there will ever be in that sin. That's how we fight. That's how we win. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take these truths now and that you'd work in our hearts. I pray for those who are not yet trusting Jesus. I pray that right now, Lord, you would strengthen their faith. You would draw them to yourself. They would see the beauty, the truth of Messiah Jesus, and that they would trust Jesus to forgive them, to change them, to satisfy them. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who's tempted to try to get something through using sinful means. I pray that right now they would see you've promised them that no good thing will you withhold from those who walk uprightly. Give them a resolve in their heart now to walk uprightly and to trust that you'll give them whatever they need. And Lord, those who are being tempted now to sin, let them see and feel that you are a vastly superior treasure and let them fight in that way, I pray. In Jesus' name.